And we're even talking about traditional, you know, top 100 schools that typically think only about 18 year olds coming in. We're now thinking, what is that 44 year old or 34 year old doing? And so to me, that, that's a lot of opportunity for higher ed. Welcome to Create New Features, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders and entrepreneurs and explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Adam Ray. Adam is the founder and CEO of Astrum U, a Seattle-based data science startup that translates educational experiences into economic opportunities. Adam held a variety of senior leadership and founding roles at data analytics, cybersecurity, cloud and machine learning focused companies. He was one of the founders and the CEO of Tier 3, a public sector cloud services provider acquired by CenturyLink, one of the largest U.S. enterprise communication companies. Adam, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here, Aviv, and really looking forward to the conversation. What did I miss in uh, your background there? You know, the the obvious thing that is not so obvious is I am, uh, for all the big data, AI, and uh, cloud services, I am an English major by training. That's my background in undergraduate. That's great. And how does it influence or, or plays out in your role as a CEO? You know, actually, it's funny. I have a natural bias for the humanities because I believe it gives a great foundation in communication, collaboration, and cognitive analytical skills. And um, as a CEO, you're basically tasked with helping people maximize their potential. And so communication and open communication and building trust, which happen to be two of the seven cultural values that our company, you know, focuses on intensely internally for our employees is everything. And I think my humanities background candidly gave me an advantage over other tech CEOs. That's great. And we will want to uh, circle back very soon to the other or to the full seven values. Let me ask you what I always like to ask at the beginning of a conversation like this, because as a CEO, there is so much that you can choose to focus on. And part of actually becoming your own CEO inside the role of a CEO is making those choices. And so when you reflect on all that's in front of you every day, what do you enjoy most about your work? Where do you feel most engaged and why? That is a great question. I mean, first and foremost, I just enjoy the interaction with the team whether it's interaction with the team and creating and collaborating on new product set, whether it's the interaction with the team in trying to tackle thorny issues like statistical signal, you know, from longitudinal data sets from education, or whether it's, you know, working directly with the team and clients to really be able to solve hard problems. I mean, 
to me, that's the fun stuff. It's the challenge. It's the open-ended. And it's, you know, there's a, a lot of derivatives that come out of that. But I would say it always starts with the team. How would you describe briefly the problem that Astrum U tries to solve? What was it that you said, we've got to solve this problem? What, what is it? Yeah, so, I mean, like, the biggest challenge is that industry and education right now have an information asymmetry gap. That gap does not allow people to directly correlate in accountable ways what education can mean to them to accomplish their objectives. And so if we're going to empower individuals to really own the outcomes and have the ability to leverage education for economic mobility, we're going to have to break education down into attributes that can create more predictable outcomes so that individuals can start to look at the pathways available to them based on their preferential needs and make data-driven decisions on what they want to invest in in regards to educational experiences to get the outcomes they're after. And so our goal is, To, to turn this into a math equation, to help people through data understand the best possible outcome available to them with educational experiences, not to make the decision, but to give them the data to be able to make quality decisions and then let them and, their, and the stakeholders they work with decide what to do. So what would be some of those attributes that you are describing that you have to be able to quantify, to quantify in terms of the educational experience? Yeah, so there's four basic buckets of attributes that we're after. Soft skills or what some might call universal skills, technical skills, experientials. And this is experiences you capture over time as you go through distance travel. This is experiences, for example, that you would do in your job, et cetera. And then ultimately preferentials. And these are the things that an individual, like it's one thing to say to build a model around ground truth and AI to machine learning specifically to tell somebody let's go make more money or advance our career but that's that's just really the beginning blocks I and mean, there's a lot of preferential data that goes into subjectives people are after so take for example if you're a, a working mother with two kids raising them and you're trying to go back to night school to be able to get an education to become potentially a nurse or a nurse practitioner or a Well, one of your preferential components is you might need to be able to live in the same neighborhood your kids go to school and you can't move. And so, you know, how can we factor that into models so that they're thinking about building to the skills and clusters of the opportunities within their particular small region of their city versus, you know, just generally, well, I can get a better job. But if it's in another city, I can't take that job. Where in those four buckets would you place, or is it not part of these four buckets, uh, the idea of sense-making skills, meaning-making skills, a way to navigate a complex shape-shifting world, wisdom-making skills? Is that bucket one, or, or that's a fifth bucket that you're not going after? <laughs> no, we're going after it. I mean, these are, these are the complex things like grit. Like, how do you get a grit? Which is not one attribute. If you read Angela Duckworth's book, it, it's, it's a multitude of attributes. But uh, we put that right now generally in, in the first bucket of universal skills or soft skills. We built an architecture that's a living data model. So as we you know, get more and more either research we've picked up from industry and been able to overlay and understand corollary initially and then eventually causation, Or whether it's, um, you know, ultimately, you know, we end up doing the research ourselves or partner up with universities or companies to do research to understand how to pick up signal on some of these things. Like, 
you know, complex, you know, critical thinking skill sets and how they apply to certain verticals or industries, then we have the ability to not only capture that, but if necessary, build whole new microservices to really factor that in depth and necessary. So for us, this is a never-ending process. Like we'll never learn everything, but you know, we're down the path and we're going to keep going. We're excited about it. So let's just stay with this because this fascinates me because one of my observations is, and we now have generations of people that have already, we call them digital natives, those that were born into this universe that you are describing. And one of the worries, one of the concerns is have we lost or are we losing some of the capacities and capabilities that you used to have in previous times? And I'm not romanticizing the past, but I am observing that in if you were born into every piece of knowledge is just a click away, courtesy of this wonderful universe that was created for us, some of the, the most important innovators in history of the world and, and the people that developed breakthroughs in science, in the arts, and so on, are people that stayed with a problem for a long period of time. You're actually describing a problem you are working on for more than five minutes or for more than an hour. Where are we cultivating in the current educational experience for people the capacity to stay with the problem and stay in an inquiry for a long period of time and develop that capacity to concentrate and stay with an unresolved problem? Yeah, it's a great question, Aviv. The, it's intriguing because, I mean, this, the attention deficit disorder that, you know, our society and cell phones and social media create, like you and I, we're of an age cohort that we had a whole portion of our lives, to your point, like when you sat around the kitchen table and somebody went, do you remember that movie? Who was that actor? And the fun of the game was, we had to keep searching and thinking and brainstorming because you couldn't just Google it. And now, of course, people, oh, look, let's just look it up. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it does. I mean, there's two sides to every coin. So I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. So by default, I'm naturally a half glass full guy. I'm, I'm going to look for positive. Only a psychopath would not be an entrepreneur and be a negative person or a half glass empty person because it's hard enough as is. But that being said, there's two ways to look at it. One is, of course, people's attention and ability to focus in, a, in educational environments and in all environments is being pressed to, to a degree never before seen in humanity. But the flip side of the equation is it's creating an opportunity for us to think about, you know, how to tackle really thorny, incredibly complex ideas and say, look, this is worth the level of attention to carry me for months, years, or in our case, we hope to be doing this decades later. And so, you know, I hope more, maybe it will inspire, and maybe this is just me imposing my, my belief system into the thought, but it will inspire more people to go, you know what, we can tackle. Like for instance, in me, seeing a trend five or six years ago going, okay, I think there's enough verifiable educational data in existence now that we can, and artificial intelligence, specifically machine learning and natural language processing, is at a level of capacity now that we can tackle, you know, predictable outcomes through education by building that through a verifiable data source and then compounding that with a lot of the public exhaust data that is available. 
And so, you know, to have that, that inspiration or desire to do it, you know, which literally half a dozen years ago would have been impossible or near impossible. You know, I hope more people are inspired because there's plenty of big challenges that our world is always facing for every generation. So if you are successful, if Astrum U is successful and you are solving this problem effectively, what would the impact, what would the outcome look like, say, five, seven years into the future? Yeah, no, it's, yeah, I can tell you, it's, it's really simple. It will be leveling the playing field for everyone. We'll be leveling the playing field for what education can do to empower people to have better outcomes. I mean, the obvious implications are for underrepresented cohorts individuals who there's a lot of components or, or a lot of programs available to help them but let but we've got to take that beyond we have to turn this into an ROI equation effectively we've got to start asking a simple question like look there's not infinite resource so we need to optimize that resource to maximize outcome and education is no different from any other vertical in this capacity and so and, and for me you know it's funny if I I take a step back and think of so I give you a sense of what I think of the, the impact, but I think society needs to start thinking of education differently too. And we hope to be driving that change. That's the other large impact. Right now, they think of ed tech or, or the vertical as its own vertical. I don't think of education as an ed tech firm. Like I'm not an ed tech firm in my book. I mean, I know that I people want to place as an ed tech firm. But the reality is education is an enabler for the government. It's an enabler for enterprise. It's an enabler for, you know, education and the growth within education itself. And so every aspect of society, especially now that we're all becoming lifelong learners, is going to be factoring some type of higher education. In fact, the last numbers I saw in 2015, there was roughly, call it, 130 million people participating at any one time in some form of higher education. So you can think about this traditional college, community college, online, you know, training, corporate training, military training, et cetera, by, across the world. They estimate by 2030, that number will be over 400 million and growing. So education is embedded in everything. And I think that's another thing we hope to change the perception on. So what was the genesis of this for you? Were you passionate in the first place about education in, in some way or shape or form? Or were you an entrepreneur looking to find an, an unsolved problem and get itself to you? Or was it a combination of the two? It's probably a bit of the combination too. I mean, but I just really, education's always been an intriguing dance for me. When I went, um, I got my, my undergraduate, as I jokingly said, uh, English major, though I do have a minor in German and, and history. So gosh knows that's got to count for something in, ed, in tech as well. But I originally was accepted to go get my PhD at Columbia in English. And I thought, oh, for sure, I'm going to go off and be a professor. And then after putting myself through school and being poor my whole life, I realized I didn't want to do that my whole life. And so I uh, jumped into the corporate world and never looked back. But I've always looked at education and always wondered it, that it could be better, that it could do more, that it has an immense amount of inefficiency. And so, you know, what we're after is, is ultimately by empowering individuals to own their own outcomes, what we're really saying is we're creating accountability in education. 
And uh, that's how we level the playing field. That's how we make education available to the most people at the most affordable way so that more people can actually create whatever their dreams and aspirations are. And so for me, I, I can think of no better thing to spend the rest of my life doing if allowed to than building a company to make this type of change in society. Let's just stay a little more with education. What would you picture, what would you say are the, the few major trends transforming, reshaping education? And what else do you see if you try to look uh, around the corner 10 years into the future? Very difficult to think now 10 years into the future. But if, if you need to think, education is one of those spaces that would have slow transformative trends rather than rapid transformative trends. What are some of the key trends that you see shaping the education well, space? There's at least three things I can throw right off the bat that are reshaping education, at least in the United States. But I, I would argue the Western world. And the first is, and the most important that recently, is the pandemic. Though we're coming out of it, awesome, you know, vaccines, et cetera, out. The reality is, you know, it radically reshaped how people think about education, at least higher education, but I would argue all education. And first being is that you can do more with online. You can actually figure other virtual ways to interact. And so if you talk to people like and I talk to deans and provosts and chancellors all the time, if you talk to them, there's almost this belief that 20 years of change has happened in 12 months across higher ed because they've just been forced to do things they would have dragged their feet on for as long as they possibly could. So that would be the first big change Let me just stay with this point. This is an important point. In an adjacent space in the corporate world where I work with senior teams in, in some of the largest companies in the world, I've been hearing for 20 years people would say change is difficult, change is difficult. I said the biggest learning for us from the last year is change is easy when we have a clear threat or a clear purpose or reason as to why we need to drive change. So I, one of my, the, the biggest messages I now communicate to leaders is don't let anybody tell you that change is difficult. Change is not difficult. We have all, as humanity at large, we have proven to ourselves that the change is not difficult. All we need is a compelling purpose, compelling, urgent reason to drive change. And you are describing Leaders in the education space are, are describing 12 or maybe 20 years or more of change in 12 months. By the way, I'm going to risk that the logical construct together and steal it from you going forward because that's, per that's great. I, I totally spot analysis. And it's funny because companies, as you and I both know, they should be more willing to adapt in higher ed. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I'm, like higher ed is like, okay, there's the, there's the government and then there's almost a close second in lethargic movement, higher ed. And so, yeah, no, it has to be a compelling reason. There has to be a rationale, a reason to talk. I would say, so one's pandemic. The, the second, which is not thought of as much, but is outside of education vertical, but is radically scaring and changing education is the cliff that's happening in traditional cohort of students. The population curve is slowing down in the United States. And so there's a cliff happening over the next five to seven years. Just explain that a little yeah. Explain that. There's roughly at any one year, 20 to 25 million new high school students going into to higher education. 
So we're thinking traditional education right now. That number is dropping precipitously over the next four to seven years, like by magnitudes of, you know, uh, 10, 20, 30, 40%, something rather large number. I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it's enough to, like, if you take, if you drop a number. But why? Birth rates. Birth rates in the traditional, I mean, we're like all Western economies, we're slowing down in, in the amount. We're not replacing the total amount. Even with immigration, we're not replacing the total amount of people that are passing away versus they're coming. So it's it's the, the curse of modern societies, right? And so that has, if you think of it as a snake going through a system, higher education has been watching the fact that, you know, 10, 20, 30% less students are going to be coming through that snake. And what does that mean to their business models? Well, you know, like if your capacity is set for a certain amount of thing, you've got 4,000 to 7,000 institutions out there and the capacity shrinks by 10% even. Well, there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. And if it's even greater, which it is, then that number is even larger. And so it has all of higher education really scrambling and this was pre-pandemic they were thinking about. It. Now post-pandemic, you know, multiply that factor. And the answer, which is the third point I would say that's radically changing education, is adult learners. Where, you know, everyone now is starting to, whether they're stopouts, which those are individuals who went, started a degree but didn't finish at any stage of education, whether it's uh, credential programs, vocational programs, you know, graduate schools, et cetera. All of that is becoming more attuned to the fact that people need to be able to get skills, credentials, and experiences to further their ambition within their work world. And so all of higher ed now is basically realized it's time to start talking about adult learners. And we're even talking about traditional, you know, top 100 schools that typically think only about 18-year-olds coming in. We're now thinking, what is that 44-year-old or 34-year-old doing? And so to me, that, that's a lot of opportunity for higher ed, uh, but it also means you've got a hyper-rational buyer who isn't going to go like, look, I'm not going for the fraternity or what your pool in your gym looked like or who your sports team was. I'm coming for a reason and I need to get an outcome out of it. And that means accountability to outcomes, which you have to measure and we can play a role in that. This is an exciting trend because you're describing a future where a larger chunk of society at large recycles time and again through some educational process, thereby potentially reorienting, reintegrating the educational institutions and greater society at large in a whole new kind of way and trying and needing to serve, as you're saying there, as you're describing different set of needs. Mm -hmm. I imagine some will be going through this cycle purely with a professional objective. Some may engage for more of an open-ended, self-renewal, personal growth, personal development, opportunities, exploration, in all sorts of ways. What is the early evidence of how that is already changing or, or shaping the educational institutions that you're interacting with? 
It was the easiest couple signals you can see out there are, you know, the graduate programs becoming more in tune with in-demand roles. You know, this is, and especially in the business schools, engineering schools, where you see, you know, data analytics programs popping up, you know, you see all sorts of other, like, you know, even if you want to look specific industries, you can see, for example, uh, the supply chain management and looking at the analytics around supply chain management. So, I mean, everybody's becoming more tuned to data. And as a data and AI company, I love this. That would be one. And the other big thing, trend, and I'm going to put online learning to the side because I think online learning has been a trend going on for a long time, but credentials and where people are looking for very specific sets of skills. They've identified through some means that, you know, they can use to further themselves. And I think that ante is going up. Here's a funny thing, if I can riff for a sec. Higher education is very disconnected from understanding what people really, how people use their product. I mean, conceptually, they get it. I train a a, a computer science engineer, they become a developer. But, you know, that's like blunt force filters, you know, Hmm. major, what's your GPA, where'd you go to school? I chuckle personally, and, and I've said this to some of my friends in higher ed, like they seem to be creating the same challenge with credentials. Now it's like, okay, blunt force filter. You say you need a BI in analytics. Hey, I've got a BI in analytics credential. Well, I have no better way of understanding what that thing means to me than when you told me you had a, you know, XYZ degree in a school where the challenge is, is by doing and kind of recreating the same tagging methodology, for lack of a better term, to all their programs, people are left wondering, what do I really do? Where do I really go? And what am I really going to get? And and this is at the heart or essence of the challenge that we're after solving is this measurement and recommendation model, where if you can, you know, measure, you know, what skills are actually being created or and what experiences are being created and what that means to outcomes, you can then make a recommendation. So at the core of what most of the work we're doing is recommendation solutions. And so I just, I don't know how somebody could solve this any other way, because if you go up right now and look online for credentials for analytics, you will get plastered with about a thousand options. Hmm. I'm I'm not smart enough to figure out which one would be the best one for me. So We'll circle back in a little bit to the measurement and recommendation engine that you're building. Let me now ask about you and your journey as as an entrepreneur. When did you discover what you're good at? And when was there a particular situation, particular mentor? I'm always fascinated with what was a, a particular centering moment where you said, oh, I'm interested in that. I can thrive in this space. Was there a formative experience in that nature that led you into your entrepreneurial career? Or would you tell the arc of how you became an entrepreneur in any other way? It's a great question. The, yeah, I mean, I became a CEO and entrepreneur for the first time when I was 39. So I would say from an art perspective, at least West Coast art perspective, that's late. You know, we, when we've got, you know, 22-year-old starting companies uh, down in the valley. But entrepreneurial mindset has always been a forefront in my mind. It's, yeah, I, I remember, you know, selling 
it's a humorous side story. When I was a child, uh, my mom was like, okay, either he's going to be building companies one day or be in jail based on the situation that I did, which was, it was the fall. I, I was raised in the Midwest and there were leaves all over the place. I set up a table, put the leaves on the table and sold them to my neighbor friends in the neighborhood. And my mom's like, they can pick a leaf up off the damn ground. And one of the moms came and complained to her and she's, she, my mom's going like, I really, I'm so sorry. It's, you know, and she's like, what are you complaining about? I'm complaining because my kid's a dumb one that actually bought the leaf in your son. <laughs> Yeah, so nonetheless, entrepreneurial activity. And so always believe in entrepreneurial activities, free market. And so, you know, like a Milton Freeman and Thomas Sowell economist mindset here. And um, from my perspective, yeah, I, if I had one, like if I could really change it, I would have done it a lot earlier. Right? So the fact that I felt like I didn't have the skills or, or the capacity and to be honest, even when I was 39, I still didn't think I did, but I was just like, well, I'm just jumping in the pool. So, you know, the message I would give back to those would-be entrepreneurs is you're never going to be ready enough. It's never going to be the right time. You're never going to have the skills. Just do it anyway. Just jump in. And it's and it's strictly being a CEO and founder is an OJT job, on-job training. There is no other way to learn it but outside of doing it. And so, you know... Those are the things that kind of took me through the arc. What are some of the important insights less and lessons you have learned and endeavor to apply about building high-functioning, uh, highly effective leadership team that works for you? Yeah, it's, a, it's the biggest thing I learned. And it's funny, you would have thought, I mean, I ran large teams in multiple companies like Akamai Technologies, Amazon, uh, Limelight Networks, and you know sometimes PLs across the globe with hundreds of people, and um, you would have thought I would have learned these things going through that, but it actually took running my first company to learn this lesson. The lesson was the value of culture, the value of building culture, and John Connors, who's a mentor of mine, I'm not men- he, I am his mentor, I am the mentee to be specific. He is my mentor. Anyway, John, who was the old CFO of Microsoft and who ran and then went off and did uh, Ignition Ventures and a really close friend and invested in my first company and this company. Anyway, you know, one of the things he told me is culture is a thing when you're in big companies. The culture of the company will keep bad behavior reined in. And, but when you're in a small company, personalities are magnified because the culture can't hold those personalities in. Good or bad will be magnified. And it took starting my own company to really learn this lesson. And so my first company, when it came to culture, I didn't pay attention to it. I didn't, I didn't try to foster it. I didn't try to work on it. I, I just let it kind of form. And guess what? It's, it formed really poorly. And I had to deal with a lot of challenges because of that, you know, and clashes of individuals and not complete lack of trust. So on my second company, which was a, a turnaround, I really focused on this as strongly as I could. And I had to learn a lot of lessons, but uh, those lessons hard fought because it was a really dysfunctional company that I took over that we had to clean up. And then by the third company though, I had both those experiences to really start from day one, creating the culture I want. 
And, you know, fast forward you know, a couple of years and, and, you know, I feel very excited about the culture because all of the employees, the first thing, we're, we're sub 50 people of Eve. So I consider all the employees to be cultural co-founders with me. And all of us are responsible for how when we're 500 people, this culture will still be strong and growing and, and maturing. Peter Drucker said that culture, it's strategy for breakfast any day of the week. In my book, Creating Futures, I updated that to uh, my aviation uh, frame of mind. And, and I said, strategy will accelerate you down the runway, but culture is what actually provides the lift. So if you do not have culture, you're going to crash right at the end of the, the runway. Agreed. So with, with that focus in mind, how, what are those seven values that you decided to focus um, and center the, the company around in terms of its culture? Yeah, no, it's, so the first one is employees first. Danny Meyer wrote a book. Uh, Danny Meyer is the founder of Gramercy Tavern, Union Square, and uh, what's a burger place? I can't, I'm totally lacking. Uh, it's got a high end burger place. Anyway, it's, it's a national chain. If I could think of it, you guys, Shake Shack. Anyway, but, and uh, the book was Setting the Table. And Meyer talked a lot about, you know, and, that, and it was, which was great for me, by the way, because he talked a lot about the restaurant industry. And it was great for me because, I actually put myself through school tending bar and waiting tables, so I'm very comfortable with it. And uh, and he made the comment, he's like, look, the team is everything. If I can get the right people in and make them employees first and focus on them, they'll take care of my customers. And, and it just downstreams there. And so he had a very strong philosophy that he laid out in that book of how what it means to take care of employees first. And so culturally, that's our, our, our one of our cultures. Next is circles of trust. Once again, I don't actually come up with any original ideas. I just steal everything I can from really smart people. And I'm forgetting the guy, the name, he wrote the book, Leaders Eat Last, Simon Sinek. And Simon Sinek stole that phrase. In fact, he said he stole that phrase from the army. So I guess I'm just stealing it from him. But what it really means is if you trust somebody, you're willing to expose yourself and stretch yourself. And so we're really big on, on building trust because trust is key. Because I tell everybody in the team, I expect you to fail at times. In fact, I, if you're not failing once in a while, you're not pushing yourself far enough. And here's the deal. I will underwrite your failure. I am fine if you push yourself, you fall over, and we have some failure. I will underwrite it. And the only question I ever ask is, what did we learn? And so, you know, to do that, people have to trust their peers that they won't, you know, eat them alive or throw them under the bus. And so trust is such a component and fabric of a successful organization. So that's number two. Just to capture the essence of this number two, because people sometimes misunderstand the message and embrace the idea of, celebrate failure. We're not celebrating failure for failure's sake. We're celebrating the learning that we acquire through failure. So very important. That's part of the ethos of the Air Force the culture. And how do we do this? We truly debrief. What was it that enabled us to succeed, to succeed? And where we failed, why did we fail? And what are we learning through that? Without that rigorous inquiry, we miss the opportunity to harvest learning. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. The um, military calls it an after-action review. 
And so AR, it's like they go every time they do a mission. I was reading, there's a book by uh, Jocko Willing called Extreme Ownership, which if you want a summary of the book, the summary is if you're the CEO, everything's your fault. So just start from there and then we, we can work on the rest. But Entity talks about how after every single mission, they all sit down in a debrief room and they do an AAR. Why? Because like there's going to be mistakes and we just want to learn from them so that we don't. And in their case, it's a difference between life or death. In our case, it just means when we lost the money or made someone mad. But it's, it's such a great exercise. The, the uh, third value. Yes, agree. And so third, over-communicate. And this one is one you could work on till the cows go home, 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 and you'll never, never be able to get it enough. People look at me like, why do you keep saying this to me? I've heard this, Adam. I, you've talked about that portion of the strategy, you know, four other times. I'm like, I'm not talking for you anymore. I'm talking for the other people who still didn't pick it up. And, and lo and behold, I can say something a gazillion times, it feels, to me personally. In reality, it's probably been three or four times. And people still don't hear it. They ask the question. And that's why, because we all have different communication styles. We all process differently. We all you know, think about things differently. We bring different experiences to the table. And so it's important to continue to rehammer. So I tell everybody over communication. I mean, I would argue those three out of the seven are like, to me, like, massively critical to a healthy, vibrant culture. And it's how a team, a small team, can beat a really big team in accomplishing incredible tasks. So over-communicate. The fourth one is uh, off of extreme ownership. It's uh, what we have a phrase on it. Now I'm blanking. See, I, I put myself in my own spot for listing out the seven. It's extreme accountability. And extreme accountability, we actually have a different phrase for it, which is eluding my mind, but this, this is the essence of it. Extreme accountability is basically own the outcomes. Right. Yeah. Right. So a culture of ownership and and how we see things differently, how we communicate differently, how we respond differently, if we all see ourselves as owners. Yeah. I mean, it's are you an employee or are you an owner? We have a philosophy that uh, I tell people we're not a family here. We are a sports team. If we're a family and you're my brother-in-law, and you were lazy and a bum, I couldn't fire you. As a sports team, my job as a coach is to help do everything I can to maximize your potential. Your job is to give it everything you've got. And if we can continue to find that alignment, it's a win. But at some point in time, if we can't, then we part ways. I can love you as a human being, but we have to be conscious that we're running a business, we're not running a philanthropy. And that's the clarity of communication. You're very transparent in the way you frame that. What are the, the other three values, if you can uh, recall them? Yeah. <laughs> see, see, I spent all my time focused on those four. And so it's like, so bias for action, and this I steal from Amazon. And I've had a lot of discussion with CEOs about this one. And I have some CEOs that are on my page that are like, yes, you know, I would rather stop talking, let's do I've had other CEOs ago, no, I think it's a bad cultural value. I think you miss, it can be re, it can be interpreted poorly by people that, you know, they should do something and maybe not have thought it through as much. And so, you know, since I'm used to starting companies and building companies and working in tech and knowing that things move fast, I just, 
I have a natural bias that look, let's just move. I can't take a parked car and do something with it. Let's just use this to pause there for a minute about your Amazon experience. Where you you saying you simulated the consciously this bias for action? What was for you the experience of working in Amazon? What what were the important learnings that you extracted from that experience? Yeah, now it's the so one was obvious that Jeff Bezos did an excellent job of imparting culture into that company. Like people talked about the culture, and I, so I worked there from two thousand four to two thousand seven. So for three years. So not, you know, a long time. In fact, I joked a friend of mine stayed. The We both started at the same time as directors. He stayed. I left. He just retired this year. Now we're sitting there, Wayne, who made more money? I, me selling companies or him staying at Amazon? And I'm like, that's a toss-off here. But the that aside, you know, it taught me, it did teach me that, you know, culture managed is valuable. Also, just, you know, I don't know. I tell people that Amazon's culture is like, and it, like the difference of Amazon culture to other companies like, say, Microsoft, is Amazon's culture is we're going to throw you in the deep end of the pool. If you can swim, you're going to be an Amazonian. You're going to love it here. If you drown, eh, you are a met for us. That's a part of the culture I actually think they should do more to rectify I don't have a problem with saying, hey, we, we messed up and we got a person that doesn't fit culture and we need to we need to just make a change. But I do think there's some accountability on both sides. Yeah. That, you know, you're bringing them in. It points to the realization that in every cultural strength, that there may be a downside or a shadow element that sooner or later needs to be addressed in and, and those certainly are to be found in, in Amazon as, as well as in any other company. What are the other two yeah. values? So frugality is the next, you know, if we can keep it cheap, you know, we don't, we want to put the money back into the people is what I just tell people. I mean, the, the team is everything. I mean, we're a company based on AI and data. So by default, you know, what the team can do. And so I'd rather put money in that versus, you know, fancy schmancy, I don't know, maybe one day we'll have, you know, the, the Google or Facebook-esque like offices, but I really doubt it. It's just not who I am, you know. And, and in fairness, Amazon, you know, for years, when I worked there, and this is, so they started, what, 94? So it wasn't even 10 years old when, when I was there, but it was already humongous, right? And I was in the AWS group before AWS was really the thing. And uh, they were chintzy then. And you kind of chuckled about it, but there was a certain amount of pride in that, you know, look, we understand like these are, this is investors' money. Like we have responsibility and we are the investors as employees. And that's that pride of ownership equation, which, by the way, is, is the last cultural value since I was able to slip it in there. So, which one? Pride? Pride. Pride of ownership. Nice. Nice. So, how do you talk about pride of, of ownership? What what is it? What is the narrative that you uh, bring to the story of pride? Yeah. So, the the narrative we bring pride of ownership is, is I like to think of it as a concept of you know bring everything you've got to the table. Do you actually own this? I mean, it overlaps with you know accountability, but the reality is, is it's like you know treat it like it's yours. Treat it like you actually want to own it, like what you want to take it. And I ask people. In fact, I'm adamant about this in the culture. I tell people like, look, if you need to be willing to disagree with me, 
you need to be willing to give me feedback and criticism. In fact, I did an interview earlier in the year with every single person. It was a half hour interview. It sometimes went up to an hour. And I brought to it because, you know, most of my companies an engineer or a data science scientist. So like, you know, so I don't have, let's just say we don't have the most gregarious, naturally gregarious group. And so I brought questions, but the real heart of it, of what I was trying to accomplish is I, I teed them up by asking them a question of, you know, just tell me what you're working on that you think I might be interested in learning. So it's something natural. An engineer could talk to a very specific thing, made it easy to start the conversation. And then we digressed into asking them for constructive criticism of something the company could do better. And I gave them an understanding of guidelines of how to give criticism, how to give it, be specific, be and then focus on giving an action to solve it. And so if you're going to give, you're going to say, call something out, that's fine. Give me a solution. And then I made them do it for me. And I said, I want you to tell me something I can do better as a CEO constructively to improve. Now, I knew two thirds of them wouldn't do it because they're scared to say it, but I wanted to give them permission. And so if you think about that, that ownership, pride of ownership. I want people to feel like, look, if you're a co-owner in this, you'd say something. You just wouldn't sit back. So how do I help you become more of an owner? I make you feel like we're all in this together. It's beautiful. The practice you are describing also has the, the idea of shifting, pivoting people in their minds from complaint to constructive criticism where the constructive criticism indeed must include a proposal, concrete proposal of what can be done differently to achieve a different result. What that does is it frees people up. It actually does, prevents them from staying in the complaint vector. I say that I teach that complaint is a misdirected energy of an unaddressed need and or unmet opportunity that you you feel you experienced as, as a failure, as a, as a missed opportunity, and that energy gets converted into complaint. And by coaching people to convert complaint into concrete requests and proposals for improvement, we completely rewire how they experience about themselves uh, at work. So, so that's beautiful. So let me ask you this question now. How do you continue to invest in yourself As a CEO, what is it you do or have done in recent time to say, I'm doing great, I'm doing well, but here is a new frontier I may be going after. And it may be even these conversations you were just painting with, with your team, but what else have you done to continue to invest in yourself as a CEO? And uh, it's the, there's a couple areas that I've done. One is reading. You know, I try, I try to read vociferously to, to pick up as much as I can. And it's funny, you know, a lot of people in my industry spend a lot of time, as you know, because you're in tech, you're wanting to read like tech jargon, stuff of that, you know, there's also, we should all do an appropriate amount of that. It's, you know, germane to whatever we're trying to accomplish. But I spend most of my time focusing on, you know, leadership, culture books. I really, really enjoy reading books like Danny Meyer's book is an example we talked about earlier. That, that he talks about what he did in his culture. You know, the Conscious Capitalism by John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods, 
really enjoy it because he talks a lot about, by the way, an employee first culture as well that he cultivated. And, and it's so I, I'd like to pick on a lot of those free market entrepreneurial books. And then I also enjoy reading a lot of uh, biographies of famous people. I just, I mean, what you really learn through it is they failed more than they succeeded almost in every situation. And it humanizes, you know, like if we, we you know, individuals. And then, and I'll pick up little things uh, along the way, like a good one uh, I picked up, uh, the Israeli startup, which talks about the Israeli military and how they train free market. Because I'm always fascinated by how Israel is like such a free market embracing economy. And uh, you find out, oh, it's, it's like, embedded into everyone beyond just cultural, like the military is reinforcing that in a, such an amazing way. And so I try to learn that way immensely. And then I also do mentorship. i cultivated a lot of mentors in my life, like I mentioned John earlier. Uh, and then lastly, I sit in two separate CEO groups, hmm. all small groups with only CEOs, and they're purposely small. So it's not like the bigger organizations, because it's like, 12 max. And so usually, you know, eight to 10 are always there. We do it monthly. And what it does is it gets CEOs. I can only ask certain questions of a CEO because they're the only ones that can look back at me and go, well, this is how I've handled it for my company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are like three things I try to do. Yeah, great. Let me ask you about the quality of courage in leadership. Can you recall an experience, a moment in time that squeezed in you, that, that catalyzed in you the need to find either the courage of your conviction or to act in a way that you experienced or recognized as courageous leadership. I ask this because I don't think it's obvious or easy in this environment to practice courageous leadership. And sometimes it's to do with framing conversations that other people would not their frame. And, and sometimes it, it is about creating the space for constructive criticism. And, and sometimes it is in, in making a, a daring, courageous business decision because of a strong conviction or an intuition. So it can play out in, in a variety of different ways. I'm interested, what for you was a moment where you felt you were able to access a sense of courage as a leader? Oh, wow. That's, um, that's a kind of a thought-provoking one there, Haviv. The, if I think about the courage and leadership, I mean, there's the everyday examples that we've kind of already covered, which is being open to getting people to talk openly about anything. And if, if you can teach them, look, if you don't demagogue, if you make it about the challenge, not about the individual, then there's really nothing we can't talk about. You know, and that can even, you know, to scope include, you know, things going on in society along the way, as long as people can try to pull that away from, you know, the emotion. And so you have to like, you know, coach them and, and help them walk through it. So but I think those are those are everyday things. Those are their tools. You're asking for something a little bit bigger. And that's I struggle because as an entrepreneur, you have to be incredibly convicted of something that is sight unseen. And so how do you find within that construct the ability to <laughs> leave yourself open to emendation? 
and it's tricky, as you know. Um, and so, you know, it's 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 one I've had to work really hard because I'm look, I'm as pig-headed as every other entrepreneur out there, and you know, and believe you know my my stuff doesn't smell, you know, and I don't really at all. But you know, the the point is, is that I'm I'm willing to just bash my head through the wall, unabraced. And um, I find that, you know, I've had to work very, very hard at learning how to, you know, I don't know, I don't, I don't think this is the strength of character, your courage you're looking for, but it's one that I always think about when immediately we face it. I thought about as soon as you were talking about this is I have to be open to, you know, that my baby might be ugly or that my baby needs to be taken a different direction to fulfill my mission. And I have to trust the individuals around me that, you know, they have the best interest at heart and I have to be able to concede, you know, whereas it's very easy to be a dictator. And so I've been working on that for about 15 years in different leadership capacity. And I still don't think I do great at it, but I, I'm definitely better than I was a decade ago. And so I think for me, that's a tough one. I mean, I actually thought of a really tough scenario I went against, but, I just, you know, but I don't know if that's courageous. It was survival. <laughs> well, part of the scenario you're describing there is the ambidextrous capacity to be full of conviction and belief about an idea that you're developing. And at the same time, this is something I've heard from Court, who connected us, because part of his practice and discipline called Lorenzini, part of his practice and discipline is whenever he is working with an idea, he, he explained that to me, he tries to find all the reasons why this idea will fail, what's wrong about this idea, and whatever he can come up with, can he solve that a problem such that will still give life to that idea? And if he can't, it means the idea is not good enough. It, it is killable. So part of what you're describing is actually a unique character trait, being able to hold these two completely different ends of the continuum, being full of conviction and belief for an idea, and at the same time, trying to kill the idea as part of caring so passionately for, for the idea. That's part of what he does very well. Oh, my God, the court's great. <laughs> court is, court is, is a natural entrepreneur, an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. Yes. So it's a hard juxtaposition, though. Yeah. Well, three closing questions, the first of which you somewhat answered in one way, but you may choose to answer it now in a different way. With all that you know today, what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? Yeah, yeah, it's actually, for me, it's an easy question because I still work on it to this day. I'm a lot better, but I, I never think I'll be good enough on this and I'll continue to. I tell my 25-year-old self, stop talking, start asking more questions, and then shut up and listen. <laughs> Great. Great. Uh, it's, it's a challenge. Like, it's, uh, you know, it's my person. I, I always love a good chat. And so, I've, but I, the older I get, the more I find I learn so much more if I just shut my mouth and listen. If you were to lose all that you know, and keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two practices, what would you keep? Wow. Are we, are we talking in context of, a, of business or just everything? Everything you choose to include in my inquiry, yes. 
Okay. okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to narrow it down to business because if I was doing it to life, then I'm going to take my, my God and my family. But uh, so I'm going to narrow it to business. And on the business front, I think if I had to choose the, the two things, if I didn't lose track of, I'd hate to lose everything I've learned about building culture. Mm. I think there's, it takes so long. You can teach me the PL stuff. You can teach me free market, but boy, the skills and building a strong culture, I just, I don't think it can be done in, you know, years. It's a decades effort and I'll be working on it for decades more, I hope. So, you know, that might be the one thing that I would not want to lose or forget about. And I'd figure I could learn the rest again if I had to. That's awesome. So um, as we bring this uh, rich exploration, Adam, to to lending, what parting wisdom uh, do you wish to offer to people listening to create new futures? Yeah, no, I would, I, the, the advice I would give to your listeners is, you know, and I'm going to make an assumption that you know, they have, you know, design or at least think about entrepreneurial activities is, you know, we live in such a great time. We live in such a time of awesome opportunity. Cloud services is a great equalizer for entrepreneurs to build incredible companies in a way that were just way too capital intensive even a decade ago. And so I would strongly encourage anyone who has the inclination or desire to start a company to not wait, to start, to take advantage. Don't worry. And here's the great thing. If you start and you're genuine and passionate, people will come out of the woodworks to help you in the strangest of ways. That's because everyone wants to see someone else do great things when they really put themselves to the effort. And so become an entrepreneur, it's a great ride and we need more of them in society because you create the jobs in the future. So that would be my parting wisdom. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.